News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, that's really something, isn't it? I'm not sure how you advertise something by calling it really terrible, but it seems to be working for that right there, which is the really terrible orchestra of the triangle. Like, that's what they call it. Maybe it's because it's such a great idea. People wanting to play in an orchestra even though they aren't necessarily the best or, you know, fantastic musicians. Well, Dr. Robert Petters is the conductor for the really terrible Orchestra of Triangles in North Carolina and joins us now to talk about it. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Now tell me, how did this all get started? Well, uh, the founder, Sandy Hobgood, went to a concert in New York City of a really terrible orchestra from Scotland. And he loved the idea, so he started the orchestra here in North Carolina with the same ideas. And the whole idea basically is, if one, if you don't want to play professionally, or if you haven't played for a while, or if you've just picked up an instrument, or if you're a professional trombonist who wants to play French horn, then you can play in this orchestra. So the idea being that lots of people take, you know, lessons or they grew up playing, but maybe that's as far as it got. This is a place for them. Yes. Uh, We have a lot of players who played in high school and maybe college and then had families. And 30 years later, they picked up their instrument and they play with us. And so what do you think it is about this by calling it really terrible that appeals to people? And it's interesting because... Uh, some people have said, you know, it's not really terrible, but this the name is stuck, and uh, the players come. One, they know that there's no attendance policy, so if they have a conflict, they don't have to worry about being kicked out. And two, they don't have to play every note. What do you wait a minute? What do you mean they don't have to play every note? Well, I mean, if there's a passage that moves quickly and they don't have the experience to play all the notes, they play what they can. See, it's it's the joy of the playing music. That's the whole thing. And they just do the best they can. I love this idea. It said, oh, if that part's too hard, it's okay. Just sit that part out and join in when you feel confident again. Exactly. What do you think this is doing for the people who participate? It gives them... Again, the the joy of playing music as amateurs, uh, it's much more for the players than for the concert audience. But we we do focus on rehearsing, and twice a year we do give a concert. But again, it's for the players. Right, but Dr. Pettis, those concerts are pretty popular, are they not? Oh, yes. Yeah, they get pretty much sold out. And so there's something about them that appeals to people. Well, and of course, a lot of the uh, players have friends and family who come to the concerts. Right. So it's really a family affair. Right. But I think also it's the idea of people being able to do something that maybe they thought was out of their reach, like they're doing it just for the pure joy of it. Exactly. Exactly. 
And how is it for you as the conductor? Is it more challenging when people are kind of jumping in and out of the music? Like, how do you do your job? Oh, uh, I've always been my whole career wanting to work with amateurs, music lovers. And uh, I've taught public school for seven years and done a lot of college conducting. But uh, again, it's, it's for the amateurs, the music lovers. That's, that's who I enjoy working with. So can anybody join? We've had uh, people who have just started playing, wanted to play an orchestra. And they, they come and they don't play all the notes, but they enjoy themselves. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so, well, now, we've had a couple people, we said, you know, you're too good for us. Oh, my uh, you might want to find an, You might want to find another orchestra, because there are a number of community orchestras in the, in the area. I was going to ask that question, like, what happens when somebody shows up and you go, wait a minute, wait a minute, what are you doing here? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, but on the other hand, like I say, we have a a professional trombonist who's playing French horn. Wow. And we have a, <laughs> a professional flutist who's playing cello. So if Why? they want to play another instrument, they're, they're certainly welcome. Although, you know, this brings up a good point, though, Dr. Patterson, is that sometimes do we get boxed in so early, right? If somebody takes lessons and they're half decent on the flute, well, that's it. They're playing the flute for the next 20, 30 years, and maybe they never really wanted to. Yeah, that sometimes that happens, but I don't think we have any of those in the orchestra. No, you've got people who, even if they grew up playing the flute and maybe thought about playing the trombone, now they're playing the trombone. That's right, exactly. All right, so do you encourage everybody, like even when you were a teacher then, Dr. Petters, like what was your advice to people who were just learning to play? Well, as, as a teacher, you always encourage those to keep going and help them with their technique and with their uh, counting and all, all of the elements of music that make up performance. Yeah, the encouragement is, is very important. So you might not be the greatest at it, but keep at it. Uh, I remember a, a saying, I can't remember who said it, but uh, the, the text goes, the woods would be very silent if only birds sang there who sang the best. You know what? Well put. I can see that. Makes perfect sense to me. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. All right. Thank you for having me. That is Dr. Robert Petters. He's a conductor of the Really Terrible Orchestra of the Triangle. That's what they call themselves. They're in North Carolina. Of course, based on the idea of the Really Terrible Orchestra, which originated in Scotland. Uh, But they are very popular. It's a great idea. This idea that, you know, you might not be perfect at it. You might not be good enough to play in another type of professional orchestra. But yeah, go have some fun, play. If the part's too hard, yeah, you could sit that part out, just pick up the note where you feel like it. It feels like that wouldn't work, but in this case, it absolutely does work. And there's plenty of people, I'm sure you could do that here, who would love to participate. This is Mornings with Simi. Are you ready to spend some money? Well, I am this week. I've been waiting for some deals, but will they actually materialize? Apparently, though, our Scott Shantz is going to be a bit of a Grinch and not spend anything this year. Right, Scott? Well, we'll talk to him in a second. He's talking, but I can't hear a word that he's saying. Can you hear me now? Oh, there he is. (sighs) 
Greg Fixtet. To be fair, I because every time this comes up, I it was exactly the way it was set up when I came in here this morning. I am not so a smart man. So you say the weekend man. gremlins got to it. Is that's that what it is? Abso- that's absolutely what it is. You know what? Probably everybody here was too busy lining up for Black Friday sales. Is that what you think the problem was? Because I'm wondering, you are very anti-Black Friday. Well, Why is that? It just, it has, I feel like Black Friday has jumped the shark. So quick story. In 2002, I lived in uh, the United States and I went Black Friday shopping because I got invited to a family's house for Thanksgiving dinner and it was the most wonderful weekend. And I didn't know what Black Friday was and they took me Black Friday shopping. And I was like, this is amazing. This is like Boxing Day sales like we have in Canada. Right. So this was in but, 2002. But, here's what's th- but before Christmas so yes. that you can buy or do your holiday shopping while stuff is on sale. Yes. But since then, Black Friday has become more than just a day. For example, if you go right now, Simi, to Amazon.ca, it's Black Friday week. So why even call it Black Friday? And the deals, I bought something yesterday and I would have bought it anyway, even if it wasn't a Black Friday deal. I bought a pair of earbuds, 15% off. Is that a deal? That's not a deal. Well, I mean, it's cheaper than the, what you would have paid otherwise, but Scott. The whole thing they're billing it is like, oh, cheapest all, price of the season. I don't get out of bed for less than 50% off, Simi. Ouch. Okay. Also, I'm pretty sure that, you know, Black Friday deals and holiday shopping involves you buying things for other people, not for yourself. So I'm sorry that your AirPods were only 15% well, off or whatever it is that you bought. It's because one stopped working. So I needed a pair, but I am right. shopping for other people. But the thing is, I just don't like that. It feels like this manipulation that it's like, hey, well, we're offering you these huge here's, sales. Here's what I don't like. I will tell you what I don't like. And that is because like I, I observe all of this stuff. You know, I, I spend some time online shopping or online browsing. And there's some websites that I really like that won't give you the same deal in Canada that they are giving their customers in the United States. Okay. Now there's a particular retailer that I really like to shop at that I have shopped at for 20 years plus. They used to have stores in Canada. They don't anymore because in the pandemic they pulled out and kind of focused on the United States. But if I go to their Canadian website, there is no mention of any sales at all. See, I like that. But if I scroll down and change my location to the U.S. website... 50% 50% off, 50% okay, off some 50%, of the same items. 50% so now, is good. So now I'm mad, but they won't ship it here, right? I can't buy off the American website and have it sent here. They automatically go, nope, sorry, we're right. not, you can't right. buy it here. So that makes do? me mad because you I get- think, well, wait a minute. I want to buy this stuff, but I want a deal on it. And you're giving some customers the deal and not all customers yeah. the deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it used to be, this is what I was going to say, it's supposed to be because Black Friday was an American, or is slash was an American thing. And people used to line up to go across the border and buy Black, was go Black deal. Friday shopping yes. in the States. And now that doesn't, that totally has just gone away. And it just feels like a regular shopping day where if it's 50% off, whoa, that's a huge savings. It when is. really that's every Black Friday sale should be 50% off. 20% off. We get 20% listen. off every weekend. No, we don't. Also, I don't blame retailers here for wanting to get in on that because you were watching people go down to the United States and spend their money somewhere else. And so to compete, they thought, well, we can do that. We can keep people here. But I just wonder what is it going to take to get people to start spending this season. So for you, Scott, I think you said you don't get out of bed for, for less, less than, than 50% off. Well, I think that's ridiculous. What? I'm going to say that for most people, they will look twice at something if it's I'm saying 25% off. What? Yeah. Maybe 25% I'm not saying off they're gonna is buy nothing. it. I'm not saying they're going to buy it. I'm saying they'll go, hmm, 
All right, that's piqued my interest at 25% off. And I also think that the things that are getting the big discounts are things that just aren't selling anyway. Like, for example, Best Buy, right? Big electronics retailer. I looked through some of their stuff. You know what's 50% off? You know what first pops up at 50% off? What? Light bulbs. Light first bulb. of all, don't knock Oh my gosh. That. Black, it's supposed to be fun. <laughs> I TVs have a lot of and PlayStations. <laughs> and that, like yeah, an LED light strip. I you will know? check it all out. I will say, because you don't know, there's always a door crasher deal. There is something, like maybe you have to do a little looking, but I see things that are, you know, save $150, save $70. At this point, money saved is money saved. I get that, but I'm just saying, if it's if it's that, if you need it, you need it, and you should go and buy it and look for a deal. I get that. But if not, like, I don't think, because people are going to go because it's cheap. You know, they're like, oh, it's Black Friday sale. So they're going to go and spend money that they probably don't need to spend anyway, right? If you're waiting for Black Friday, you can probably just wait and save the money. And, you know, if you really, really need it in six months, it'll be on sale again. Okay. I see what you're saying here. I think the argument is that retailers need to be careful because people are very savvy about prices. Bingo. And so, for instance, a year ago, we bought a new washer and dryer. Okay. And I bought it, you know, shopped around. And that's what people do. They shop, they shop, they shop, they shop. And they bought it, what I, which I thought was a pretty good price. And I'm looking at it right now. And apparently it's a Black Friday price on a certain website, which I'm not going to name. And it's the same price that I bought it right? for a year so, ago. Case in point, exact case in point right there. You know, the thing yeah. that's 15 or 25 or 30% off, it will be 30% off again so, at Boxing Day and then again in the spring and then Valentine's Day. Okay, I get, yeah, I get what you're saying. I'm just wondering what people's... Uh, modus operandi is then. So how do you do this? How do you find the good deal? People must have advice on this, right? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. What's what's your strategy, your tactic? Where you just go on the radio and rant about it. (laughs) Maybe you have a strategy for this. So that's what we would like to know because Scott and I are going to continue this conversation. So send me at cknw.com. Are Black Friday deals even worth it? This is Mornings with Simi. I'm Press on this Monday morning to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. All right. Now, you've watched a lot of political conventions over the years. It was an interesting one we saw this weekend from the NDP. Yeah, very interesting. I I missed a love-in. I was away. I'd had a trip planned to Seattle for a while to see a couple of art shows and went ahead with it, which is how irresponsible I've become in my old age. But anyway, it sounds like I missed a love-in. Uh, there were some very noisy protesters out on the steps of the Victoria convention center and a pro-Palestinian rally, but in the hall, it was a pretty happy occasion, judging from the reports of all my colleagues. Premier got a 93% approval vote from the 700 delegates. I sort of looked at it and said, I wonder, who are the 7%? Yeah, that's what I was What's not to like? (laughs) Uh, But there were some signs in the hall from people saying frack-free NDP. So there are some new Democrats who are opposed to the big LNG project in northeastern British, uh, northwestern British Columbia, the one that's uh, going to be coming on stream fairly soon, the big terminal there at Kitimat. And those people, I guess, were holding the signs and maybe they made up the unhappy 7%. 
Hmm. Okay. So I, I also feel like we got a bit of a preview of what we're going to be hearing about yeah. kind of the attack lines for the next year. Sure. I mean, we're in pre-election mode. Uh, are we ever totally out of pre-election mode? I do wonder I don't sometimes. Think so. But anyway, the election's next October, says David Eby. That's the date he says he's sticking to. There's speculation he might go earlier, but um, he says it's October the 19th, 2024. And he rolled out his uh, initial attack plan, a pretty sharp attack on Kevin Falcon and BC United, his prime opponents. But he also held in reserve another theme, which is defending climate action and the carbon tax, because in the event the BC Conservatives surge past BC United, well, then they want to get rid of the carbon tax. So he's going after them as well. Hmm. Okay. And some of the, you could almost tell what they're shaping up with some of their ad campaigns. Yeah. I mean, look, Kevin Falcon's got this line that comes out of his whole idea that the New Democrats have made massive promises, but not delivered. They can't get stuff done is his theme. And one of the things he talks about is housing. And a favorite line of Kevin Falcon is, you know, I know something about building housing because, well, he worked as a developer when he was out of the legislature for a few years, almost 10 years. Well, David Eby, of course, has turned that into a talking point. He says, yeah, Falcon, uh, his uh, housing policies are designed to suit developers like himself, you know. So Hmm. be careful what you say. Yeah. Uh, Your opponents are listening and... I don't know whether uh, you should be going around boasting that you're a housing developer in this market where people are overwhelmingly concerned about the cost of housing. They don't think developers are the answer. They do think that a lot of the provincial government stuff is at least worth a try. Whether or not it'll deliver the goods by the next election is another matter. Uh, but Simi Eby's working up his line on that one as well. So it was interesting to see this line that got reported in a lot of the news stories that he's not nearly satisfied with the results so far. He wants to show people before the election where we're headed, but he's not claiming that he's going to solve the problems of healthcare waiting lists and housing affordability and cost of living and all that. Rather, he's going to lay out this whole program, say, there's where we're headed and we want you to endorse it. So a little more realistic than the talk we got from him, Simi, right at the beginning of his time as premier, where he was saying, well, I want to show results so people can see and touch and feel and hear and experience. I think he's recognized that It's a heck of a lot easier to talk up these things, put money into it, public money, pass legislation and regulations, but to actually get the housing built, that's going to take some time. Hmm. Okay, so we're getting a lot of previews here. Also, I guess we should say on a happier note, congratulations to the Premier and his family. Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, Kaylee Lynch, the premier's spouse, uh, addressed the delegates. In fact, she introduced him and (laughs) she... Uh, wow, she goes, uh, oh, by the way, some of you may have noticed, uh, uh, we're, I, we are expecting uh, their third child will be due uh, next year, next spring. And very funny line, she said, you know, this was a planned pregnancy, so that's not why the government got rid of uh, charging for contraception. (laughs) (laughs) And even, you know, it's really interesting. I mean, Simi, you know, there's a view out there in our society that 
the orthodox tradition, the, the modern day size of family that is two children, right? So they're going to have three. And Evie says, hey, I grew up in a family of four children and I like a full house. So yeah, it's great. Nice. I, mean, I think everybody says congratulations, Premier. Congratulations, Kaylee. And wow. Uh, on they go. They're going to be a big family by modern day standards. All I could think of was a big family, busy family, though. You're oh, yeah. one premier, <laughs> one family doctor and three small kids. Boy, good luck to them. Yeah. As I well, let's see. The son is nine. The daughter is four. So, yeah, yeah. it's a... Uh, well, Here we go. yeah, they're going to have their hands full. They're going to be busy. And, uh, you know, Simi, I occasionally look after one grandchild. And uh, good <laughs> heavens, uh, it's nervous breakdown city for an <laughs> old person like me. He's wonderful, but does he exhaust you? <laughs> I get that feeling. Absolutely. All right. We have more to talk about with Vaughn coming up next. All right, we're back talking with Vaughn Palmer this morning. And Vaughn, honestly, in this day and age, I find it hard to believe that anybody is signing something and putting their name to something that is going to be released publicly they, that they haven't taken a good look at, you know? Well, yes. And we have a Victoria City Councillor who has been challenged, and we haven't heard from her yet. So I'll put an asterisk, but the news media here in the provincial capital have been trying to get a hold of Councillor Susan Kim. Uh, she's not returning calls, near as I can determine. But here's the deal. She signed, you know, that petition that caused the big flap yes. last week because it is a, it's actually aimed at the ouster of a member of the NDP, member of the provincial parliament in Ontario, where a woman was kicked out there. And that's led to a petition of sympathy for her. So that's the backstory on this. And the, the petition is critical of Jagmeet Singh as well. It's a sympathetic petition to the Palestinians. However, there's a line in it that has generated a lot of controversy. And that's a, a reference to the unconfirmed reports of sexual violence against women by Hamas, so rape. Um, as you will recall, and we know this happened last week, uh, over the weekend, the head of the women's health uh, uh, operation uh, at uh, the University of Alberta uh, was fired because she signed that petition. Uh, Alberta Sexual Assault Center denying reports of sexual assault. I mean, the rule is we believe the women. So that, that led to the ouster there. Well, another signature on that petition, petition is Susan Kim. She's a member of the Victoria City Council. Now, I will say that she, we haven't found out how she ended up signing that petition or how her name ended up on that petition. And as you know, Simi, there's some controversy out there about people whose names popped up on things uh, that they didn't well, sign or the organization didn't authorize. Right. That's what I'm wondering about. Is it like what if you're in this day and age right now with how controversial yeah. that is, don't put your name to anything without thoroughly reading it because yeah. afterwards, if you're going to claim that that's not what you intended, well, it's hard to say that. Yeah, that's an issue. Uh, you know, it, it, it's possible. That's that's the explanation. Although, you know, as, as again happens, when your name shows up, uh, people go looking to see what else you've signed and what else you've said, and people have turned up 
a uh, posting uh, by Susan Kim, the counselor, on her Twitter account, proclaiming the glory of the martyrs in the wake of the Hamas attacks. Now, uh, the radio station here, CFAX, and uh, the newspaper, Times Columnist, and the TV station, Check, where our friend Rob Shaw works, have all tried to get the counselor's side of the story on this. They've not gotten very far. I think the one posting I saw, she said uh, she was traveling when this controversy blew up, and so she wasn't able to respond. Apparently, and I haven't checked this myself, but I see a report uh, from Check that um, she's taken down her Twitter account or deactivated or removed all the postings. So uh, this one isn't going to go away. I would think, you know, she's going to have to at some point come forward. One of her opponents in the last election, Simi, started a petition calling for Kim's resignation. Uh, over the weekend, it had already collected several thousand signatures. So... Again, uh, the mayor, there will be calls uh, to the mayor, Marianne Alto, uh, other members of the council. There's been calls for the council to meet and censure her. I don't know where it's all headed, but this is a polarizing issue, as we know. We saw it on the weekend again at the NDP convention. There were protesters outside accusing David Eby of being complicit in genocide because of what's going on in Palestine. So it's a very deep, divisive, bitter issue. I guess I'll give the counselor the benefit of the doubt that when she signed this petition, she may not have realized what she was signing on to. That may end up being her best defense, but we haven't heard from her yet. Hmm, okay. And I, again, I don't understand why other politicians don't look around and go, geez, I, I really hope to avoid that kind of situation. Yeah, I mean, I think the more experienced politicians do have somebody in charge of their social media postings. And if they're wise, they still approve them. But, you know, <laughs> it's an old rule. It, was, it used to be a rule with email, which is, you know, before you send this email off to somebody, uh, take a walk around the block and yes. think about it and come back yes. and read it. You know, I have a bad temper, <laughs> and I sort of tried to learn that one a long time ago, which is uh, stand back and think about it. I have a, a, a very wise, good counseling spouse, Dale, and she's and my daughter, Elise, and they've spared me many an ill-thought-out, <laughs> ill-advised posting. I'm, I'm glad I have you when I'm doing live radio because I count, I think, well, Simi will shut me up if I really go across the line. I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking, have we ever seen this, Vaughn? Like, I feel like we need to let this one loose maybe every once in a while and see what happens as a result. Yeah, of well, get me, get me talking about some musical act or something and keep me out of trouble, oh, Simi. Note for tomorrow. Or maybe a movie or a Black Friday sale, but don't get me into politics. Okay, time. well, I'm making notes on this for sure for future reference. Uh, Vaughn, thank you for that. <laughs> Bye-bye soon. That is Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, if we want to fight the toxic drug crisis, first and foremost, we need to know what we're fighting. But how can we do that if we're finding out too late about the latest designer drug that people are taking? Well, research from the University of British Columbia and the BC Provincial Toxicology Centre hopes to change that. So they have a study that's been published in Analytical Chemistry that actually uncovered some drugs in old samples that had been previously undetected. Drugs that people were using but weren't being detected by the usual tests. 
So what can we do with this information? Well, Dr. Michael Skinner is a study lead and assistant professor of integrated genomics at Princeton University, and he joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. So how did you find this out? Um, well, I guess the, the challenge that we wanted to address in this study was that um, in any given year, there might be dozens to hundreds of new designer drugs that emerge on the illicit market. Um, but because these are entirely new molecules, it's not really practical or realistic for a lab to be um, testing for them. And, and it's not really possible to set up hundreds of new clinical tests every year. Um, and so in practice, the lab has to make these difficult and somewhat subjective decisions about what drugs uh, they want to test for next. And so our goal in this study was really to develop a platform to make these decisions in a more data-driven way. Um, and we showed that by reanalyzing data from more than 12,000 urine drug screens that had been done in British Columbia over the last three years, uh, we could identify numerous drugs that were circulating in British Columbia, but which were not being detected by existing clinical tests. So this was information we already had, we just didn't know how to look for it? Exactly. Um, so the, the gold standard for detecting a new drug in, in the setting of, you know, making a clinical diagnosis and determining how someone's going to be treated is uh, to compare uh, the patient sample, whether that's blood or urine, to a synthetic form of that same drug. And that really is the only way to achieve 100% uh, confidence identification. Um, but it's not really realistic for labs to be buying hundreds of new synthetic uh, reference materials for emerging drugs every year. So we asked if instead we could compare the patient data to data that had been collected in other labs around the world um, for these drugs. And so this isn't really accurate enough to be you know, directing, uh, directing treatment, but we showed that it is accurate enough to get a sort of bird's eye view of what drugs are circulating in the community. Right. So what can we do with this information then, Dr. Skinner? Because you're right, is that by the time we know about some of these drugs, they've already taken hold, haven't they? Yeah, exactly. I think one of the more striking examples in this study was a drug called fluorofentanyl. Uh, and our data showed that this drug had actually been circulating for well over a year within British Columbia before the end of our study. Um, and again, that drug was really, you know, emergency physicians and public health officials were not aware that that drug was proliferating. Um, so I think that the ultimate goal is that this technology could really shorten the lag between the introduction of a new drug into the community and our ability to test for it in clinical samples. And that would then go on to inform the public health response as well as, you know, more acutely uh, emergency treatment, overdose prevention and, and things like that. Okay, so if health officials have to use that information, right? And do you see them setting up to, to take advantage of what it is that you've discovered? Absolutely. And that's, you know, one of the most exciting things to me about our work. Um, the BCCDC is already uh, moving to implement this into their routine clinical workflows. And so the idea is that um, this sort of retrospective analysis um, of the kind that we described in this paper would be performed on a regular basis. For example, let's say every month, and this would kind of provide a platform to constantly be um, gathering new information on the emergence of new drugs in British Columbia. Did it surprise you to know that you thought, oh my goodness, look at all these other drugs that we didn't know about? I think it definitely highlights the need for this sort of technology. Unfortunately, I wouldn't necessarily say it's surprising because, um, you know, the toxicologists at the um, BCCDC, who, who we worked with in this study, you know, they had a pretty good sense that there were going to be 
many new drugs that they weren't uh, testing for. And, and that, again, speaks to this issue of um, how exactly do you prioritize these potential emerging drugs for, for the development of new clinical tests? How do you do that? Yeah, well, hopefully, I mean, hopefully the, the work in this paper provides sort of a data-driven manner to do this. And I think the argument is that um, we can take advantage of this wealth of data that we've already collected and reanalyze it, uh, query it against data that's been collected in other labs, and then kind of uh, immediately, as soon as a new drug um, you know, comes to the attention of forensic scientists in Canada or elsewhere, uh, we could uh, rapidly determine whether or not this drug is present in British Columbia. Okay, so that would be the goal then. You would have to see it show up, right, in, in tests, and then say, what is this? We have to find out what this, this new thing is. Yeah, it, it's sort of maybe slightly different from that. The idea is that, you know, let's say a lab in Toronto or a lab in Europe might um, report that they've discovered some new drug. Uh, we would then be able to very rapidly uh, check whether this is a drug that there's any evidence is present in samples collected within British Columbia. Right. Uh, and if it is, then then the lab could then go and develop a, a, a test for it. So how close do you think we are to this? Like, is this, you mentioned that the BC Toxicology Center wants to look at this. Are you confident that you're going to see this in practice soon? Yeah, I am. Um, I think that there's uh, very few barriers to actually putting this into practice. Um, again, this is a, this is a kind of computational platform that really works with the data that the Provincial Toxicology Center is already generating on a daily basis. And it works with data that's, um, shared by labs around the world who work in this sphere. So I'm, I'm really, uh, you know, quite excited to see this put into practice. And I think that's going to happen in the, in the relatively near future. Yeah, well, thank you so much for telling us about it this morning. Yeah, absolutely. Some important work there being done by Dr. Michael Skinner, study lead and assistant professor of integrated genomics at Princeton University. He was part of this UBC team, though, that developed these tests so they could go back and look at old samples and find that there were traces of toxic drugs in there that they didn't even realize were in the system and being used until now. So hopefully we'll get a better grip on that in order to fight that toxic drug crisis. This is Mornings with Simi. Story of the two Michaels. This was a big deal, right? The idea of two Canadians being held in prison in China arbitrarily struck a deep chord with people. Nobody wanted to have that happen to them. So it's no wonder that people advocated so strongly for the government to do something, do more, to bring them home. But now we are also getting a glimpse of what was going on behind the scenes and a better idea of the challenge facing the Canadian government at the time. Now, there's a great story, as I said, in the Globe and Mail over the weekend. I highly suggest that you check it out at globeandmail.com. But right now, Robert Fife is joining us, Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail. Robert, thank you for being here. You're welcome. So can you give me an idea? What have, what have you learned about what was going on behind the scenes between the two Michaels? Well, we now know that um, Michael Spavor, uh, three years after he came back, almost three, well, actually two and a half years after they came back from uh, being released, uh, believed that um, that Mr. Uh, that Michael Spavor, a fellow prisoner, had deceived him. Uh, he didn't. He, uh, as you know, Mr. Spavor had a very good relationship with the dictator of. Uh, North Korea, uh, Kim Jong-un. He had 
jet skied with him, had met many senior ministers, had cocktails with the guy, brought Dennis Rodman on a tour to meet the dictator. So he, he ran a, a very, he was one of the very few Westerners who had real access to North Korea. And he was a friend of Michael Spavor, who uh, was a diplomat at the Canadian Embassy in Beijing. Mr. Um, Kovrig worked as uh, an officer with the Global Security Reporting Program, which um, uh, which uh, goes and interviews and talks to people uh, overtly, uh, but then shares this information with CSIS and the Five Eyes Committee. Mr. Spavor is saying that he thought this guy was his friend. He didn't realize that when he was telling him stuff, it was being passed on to CSIS and the Five Eyes Intelligence Community, and that uh, this was the reason why they ended up getting arrested and were put in jail for almost three years. And he, as a lawyer, is seeking to get uh, a multi-million dollar settlement from the federal government. And that's where we're at right now. Um, whether the government settles with him or whether it goes to court, we will know, I guess, in the next coming days or weeks. Oh, boy. So have the negotiations, from what you understand, going on for a few years here? And this no, is now... No, they've been going on since, apparently since August. Okay, so this is a relatively new development. How much of this, Robert, was known before? Like, you talk about the North Korea aspect of this. I feel like that didn't get a lot of discussion when all of this was happening. No, uh, partly, I mean, it, it, I mean, I don't think it takes away from the fact that China arrested these two uh, and held them as hostages because of the Huawei chief executive, Mullen yes. Zhou, being uh, detained uh, on a U.S. Uh, extradition request. There's no th- doubt about that. But it, it also, I mean, we've been led to believe that these guys were just picked up randomly and it had nothing to do with their relationship or anything like that. Well, now it casts a new light on what we've been told and what we've re- reported for the last several years that, in fact, there's a possibility that China might have had reason to arrest the two, two of them um, because uh, the information that w- was being shared with Mr. Kovark and then was being passed on to intelligence services. So that's really the crux of the issue. Um, I know the government is saying that insists that, you know, these guys are, that had nothing to do with it. They were just picked up because China was, was trying to retaliate and that they're, and that Mr. Kovark is not a spy, that he works for this program. It's, they are, they do their work overtly they do reports, they do send it on to the Five Eyes Intelligence Community and CSIS, but it's not It's not like you're running spies, it's not like you're doing um, covert intelligence work. Right, so that was kind of an open thing. And I guess from what I could read in, in the story as well in the Globe and Mail is that there was no indication that any of this or any of this work really had to do with, with China. Uh, well, I'm not sure about that, but... Uh, but Let's face it, uh, anything that goes on in North Korea is going to be of great interest to China. Right. Okay. So, boy, the sir adds another uh, dimension to all of this, doesn't it, Robert? Yeah. Yes, it does. And, you know, we, I think there's, we have to see how things unfold, see if there's more information that comes out. Um, but it does, it does certainly uh, give us pause and makes us look at the whole situation a little differently. 
It really does. Uh, Robert, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We appreciate your time. You're welcome. Bye. That's Robert Fife. Robert is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail newspaper. Check out this story, globeandmail.com. Tell you, when I saw even the headline of this over the weekend, I thought, what is happening here? Essentially, it's the two Michaels uh, in a bit of a legal dispute. Michael Spavor accusing his fellow Canadian detainee, Michael Kovrig, of unwittingly contributing to their detention, uh, accuses him of inadvertently passing information to Canadian authorities. Essentially, Michael Spavor is now seeking a multi-million dollar settlement on this uh, because he had a close relationship with Kim Jong-un in North Korea. I kind of find it hard to believe that he didn't think that that wouldn't be of interest to a lot of other governments. If you're the guy booking Dennis Rodman for a trip to North Korea, yeah, I can see how governments might be a little interested in your work and your connections there. So boy, it sure does add a whole nother layer to this story, which of course we will be hearing more about. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Are you ready to spend some money? Well, the retail industry sure hopes so, as many Black Friday sales are kicking off today. But are those deals worth it? Are they worth your time and investment? And how much is the retail industry really depending on these sales this year? Well, to break it all down for us now, we're joined by David Ian Gray. David is the founder and strategist at retail advisory firm Dig360. David, thanks for being back with us. Yeah, good to talk to you. I can't believe it's a year. <laughs> I know. Me neither. Me neither. So are you checking out any of these Black Friday sales? Yeah, I, I was, you know, popping in on some things on the weekend and uh, keeping an eye out on online. Okay. So what are you seeing? Uh, I, I think compared to other years, uh, and there could be a couple of reasons for this, but the retail sector by and large has dialed back some of the pre-event promotions, you know, in terms of mainstream media and uh, window fronts and things like that. It's really, it was really just this last weekend, sort of a little spike in, uh, in promotional signage and things were were sort of coming up. And I, I think in, in the past, some of that was happening as early as late October, early November. So I think there's a bit of a delay um, on that side of it. And probably for a few good reasons. Okay, why? Good, good point. I guess they set <laughs> yeah, that up, didn't yeah, I? Exactly. Um, well, you know, on the one hand, I think we've got a uh, very challenging consumer environment this year, and so people have already uh, started to be careful about their spending. You know, in a way, we really haven't seen in years. Uh, that that started in the summer, and so I think. Um, there's almost a, a self-realization amongst the retailers that um, I don't want to say self-defeat that, that wouldn't be quite right, but an understanding that there's only going to be so much spending that there that's going to come forth. Um, so I think they want to kind of match their investment in it. Uh, but the same token, just as con- households are watching budgets, the retailers are also very much watching budgets and it costs a lot of money both to promote uh, Black Friday, you know, to cut through the noise we all see, and uh, and also to um, be able to keep their margins up and not erode them too soon. And I'll throw I'll throw one more thing in that's different this year, which is there's a there's a heightened concern about the well being of staff that I haven't seen really in past years, and uh, and I think for that reason also there's a uh, 
talking privately to some retailers, they, they want to kind of avoid the really spiky, crazy door crashing slam days followed by uh, big drop-offs and they want to try and smooth it out, you know, smooth the sales out over time. That is so interesting because that's something we've never, I haven't heard that before. Have you? I started hearing about it um, the last couple of years. I think the pandemic started to, I, I think the thing in retail is you start developing a pattern of, of how to do things. I'm using air quotes and, and then everyone kind of copies it and you, you, you don't think of anything new, but I think the reality is the pandemic taught that a lot of things can change up and still be good for the consumer and good for the business. And I, I, I think the, uh, the effort and exhaustion even of trying to match inventory and people and staff to very spiky highs and then have to manage when there's lulls that tend to follow. Um, that can still work if you're one of those retailers who makes their whole name and game around Black Friday and Boxing Day, you know, the, the big box guys. But for a lot of other retail, they're, they're in a game that just, it, there's a, a hidden cost to it. And I think they were, they've learned that they can uh, not necessarily play the game the same way as they had in the past. Right. So David, it sounds like then that retailers are being just as careful about these Black Friday sales as the consumers are this year. Absolutely. Um, I, I think what you'll see, like most people now are on um, email lists, for example. Uh, your, your inboxes are probably getting bombarded daily. Oh, mine is, yes. Deals, right? And, but, there, but that kind of is a low-cost way. Once you're in their, the, the, the database, that's a low-cost way to proceed. But, you know, there's also the cost of advertising, which is, tends to be high. So, you know, budgets are getting cut there. We've heard, indeed, uh, the job board, uh, had a release uh, a couple of weeks ago saying that the uh, demand for seasonal hires for retail is down this year. So that's a bit of a signal as well, um, hmm. you know, that, that something shifted. Um, so would you now, say it's, it's more targeted? I, I just want to say, though, well, yeah. I just want to say, you know, I always feel awkward with this because you try and you, you make a blanket statement that this thing right. means one uniform answer for everything. And uh, just like, you know, with shoppers, there are shoppers who are doing quite well these days and have money to burn. There really are, but it's not the majority. And at the same time with retail, you know, there's some that are doing quite well uh, in this time and place. And uh, and then there's others who are struggling. So I just wanted to point out, you, you'll always find exceptions to what I'm saying. Right. But would you say then that it's more targeted this year? Because you're right about the email. So maybe is what retailers are looking for is going after the people that they know are their customers and rewarding them as opposed to using Black Friday as a way to grab more people if they're out there. Yeah, I, I think when times are good, you kind of throw everything up at the wall, see what sticks, and and um, you know, and it all tends to work out financially. I, I think in the tough times, you have to make you have to make some choices. Um, I don't. I, I think you know, you might argue it's rewarding the current customer. Um, I think in some ways, it's also the fact that it is kind of a cheaper path forward than than sort of the more mass advertising. Um, and obviously, and if you're an independent retailer, if you're smaller, it's really hard to cut through the noise. And so you, you almost have to rely on your, 
uh, you know, you're not going to get quite as much walk-by traffic as people are heading to the big boxes. Right. And uh, you have to rely on your your, your email list uh, a lot more. Would you say there's not a lot of deep discounting going on this year? My suspicion is that that's been an area of real focus, that um, the financial health of, of small or large retail going into January, February, there's a real concern about not eroding uh, margins if demand is down. You know, if volume is really high, you can have low margins and still have a pretty good business. But if if, if the assumption is demand is going to be a little lighter, then uh, there is a concern about that. And I think um, what I saw just in a, a walkthrough, there's some there's some numbers on the big sign saying, you know, up to 70% off, but you look at the fine print and it says selected items and you go in and there's a few. Yeah. But I think where there's where there's inventory that's built up and, and there's some nervousness about keeping that. Uh, you know, I, w- I was surprised to see some of the uh, high-end uh, outerwear companies, you know, co- like um, uh, Moose Knuckles, et cetera, at, uh, at Sporting Life, for example, they're already on at uh, uh, 25% or 30% off. And that, what that signals to me, that's unheard of for that kind of premium brand. So my thinking there is, for example, they've, they've got a glut of stock and, and they're a little bit panicked about moving it. Just an illustrative example. I'm not saying they're the right. only ones. But the, so that's the thing then. Consumers have to really look around for that kind of deal. Yeah, so we, we, you know, we've tracked, we, we've done sort of special research on Black Friday and holiday for years. And one thing that really was interesting, it plateaued maybe a decade ago and hasn't changed much, is about half of adult Canadian shoppers um, actually really don't take part browsing or buying Black Friday deals, nor Boxing Day, Boxing Week deals. Uh, you know, they just, in fact, they're averse to it. it. The stores are too busy for them. And maybe online is too noisy. I think this year we might see an incremental bump simply because households are are budgeting in a way we haven't seen before. So they may hold, you know, they may not like it, but they may do it. But but of the remaining, uh, you know, the remaining shoppers, yeah, we're going to see some uh, some of that for sure, Simi. Uh, but not everybody. Right. Well, you know what, David, we're going to talk to you around Boxing Day, and we'll see what happened. But thanks so much for your time this morning. Oh, you're welcome. Have a good day. That's David Ian Gray. David is the founder and strategist at the retail advisory firm Dig360. Talking about Black Friday sales, there are some of them out there. I am curious this morning about how closely you're following them. Like David's saying, there's a lot of caution out there. Are you one of those people who are cautiously looking at these deals like it has to be worth your while? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Going to be a very interesting week economically for Canadians as we get a fall fiscal update from the federal Liberals. And that's what our Scott Chance is talking about this morning. Hi, Scott. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. So should we be bracing ourselves? Well, I don't know. I th- I, I think so. Yeah. Hasn't this all been going in the same direction for, for months and months and yes. years? Like, you know. Has anything changed? Do we feel like anything has changed? I don't know. There's not not even any great um, Black Friday deals for us to take advantage exactly. of. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Simi. Black Friday, such a waste. Uh, yeah, I spoke with Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the federal NDP, about uh, what his party is expecting from tomorrow's announcement. And uh, he basically focused in on two major things. Here's what he had to say. 
Yeah, we want to see two things happen. We want to see real action on building homes that people can afford. We want to see steps to bring down the cost of rent, the cost of housing. That's a major driver of inflation right now. One of the biggest costs in people's lives is housing. And we want to see real action to bring it down. We've seen so far most of the measures that the Liberal government has announced are to build more luxury condos, luxury apartments, things that aren't going to actually help people who are saying, we can't afford any of that stuff. We need things that are affordable. So we want to see action on that. The other big thing is grocery prices. We want to see action on bringing down the price of groceries. Those are the two things that we, we want to see the Liberals move on things that we've been pushing for, fighting for, and we know would make a big difference in people's lives. As a dad with two young kids and, you know, I have a mortgage, those are two of the hugest things that my family is looking at, you know, every month. Like, how are we going to handle this? We know we're going to renew our mortgage and it's going to be way more expensive than it already was. How is the federal government or how can the federal government actually control or manage those prices to better serve Canadians? Okay, so on grocery prices, if I start there, the... What we can do concretely is bring in place better laws that protect consumers. So we've put forward, I've put forward a bill that lays out strict measures that would end things like price gouging and price fixing with severe sanctions for any of these practices being engaged in and would just strengthen the rights of and protections of consumers as opposed to the existing situations where, consumer, where CEOs can kind of do whatever they want. So we are we're forcing the Liberals to bring those changes in and we're in... We're in a fight to make that happen. So that's, that's one thing we want to see happen, that changes to the laws that would actually strengthen protection for consumers. On the, on the housing front, we know that the, the whole reason behind the interest rates going up was to tackle inflation. But what's happening now is the increase of interest rates has actually driven up inflation because the major increase in inflation recently has been housing. And the major costs in housing are mortgage payments and rent. Both of those things have gone up as interest rates have gone up. So to offset that, to fight inflation, what we really need to do is just build more homes that people can actually afford, create more affordability that will drive down inflation. Okay. So the federal government doesn't control the Bank of Canada interest rate, supply and demand. I completely get that. For a person who's like sort of paycheck to paycheck, it feels like that solution is, you know, two, three, four years down the road before we actually start to see housing stock increase. Is there something that's going to change or that you could see changing in the immediate that could reduce housing costs for people? Uh, great question. We, we are in this position, frankly, because previous governments have not made investments in affordable housing. Since about the 90s, the federal government stopped making that a priority. And you can see the big gap in when homes became more and more unaffordable, when rents became unaffordable. And you could see that gap forming as soon as the federal government got out of that work. So the federal government actually plays a really significant role in making those investments. And right now, the, what the federal government is doing, what the liberals are doing, is they're using federal land, which is a good idea to use that federal land, but they're using it to build majority of the homes are going to be not affordable, luxury homes, apartments that are just too expensive. So what we're pushing for is when we build these homes, we need to make sure that it's all affordable. If you use public land, every unit should be affordable. And then in the short term, we need to build more homes. We need to build more homes that are affordable. And in the short term, we have to focus on what we can control quickly, and that's grocery prices. And that's why we're talking both about affording, making sure housing is more affordable and making sure groceries are more affordable. And what we can control very quickly is changes to make sure groceries are more affordable. 
that's going to help families a lot if we can bring, those, bring down those costs. And then with housing, because it's been decades of, of neglect, previous conservative government, current liberal government, both haven't made this a priority. Liberals were in power or have been in power for almost eight years. Before that, the conservatives almost 10 years. So that's 18 years of neglect. That's going to be hard to fix overnight. But there are solutions and we need to start them now. We hear about the groceries thing a lot, and I'm, I'm really glad we're talking about that because that's a very real day-to-day thing that is affecting all, all Canadians of all economic levels. So I understand that we're trying to put pieces in place. Uh, grocery store owners and companies are making statements about the things that they're doing to try to make groceries more affordable. We just We keep hearing this, and then a report comes out that profits are up. And sometimes it just seems like we just hear we hear the thing, and I, I guess sometimes it feels I feel a little bit defeated that it's like these people who are billionaires, no matter what, they're going to keep getting away with this. There's this talk. Hundred percent, I totally hear you. Right. That's- so, how how are we actually going to stop this from happening? Because it just feels like they have so much power and so much control. How do we get ahead of that? First of all, that is exactly what you're feeling is the truth. Like that is exactly what's going on right now. The large corporate grocers have way too much power. And, and just to make it factual, the, the major area where they have so much power is they control most of the market. There's just three CEOs, three companies, Loblaws, Sobeys, Metro, that control the vast majority of the grocery stores that people shop at here on the island, in BC, across the country. They're vastly controlled by just three companies, three CEOs. So they have too much power. And when you have that much power, you can do things like you can abuse your dominant market share. You can bring in anti-competitive behavior. And, and they are absolutely doing that. And the proof of how they're abusing their dominant position is that they're making record profits. Not just any old good profits, but record profits. And their profits are going up. And when we look at inflation, inflation, some of inflation has come down a bit. But where inflation has not come down and where it has been very high is food inflation and housing. Those are the two areas that continue to be uh, quite quite difficult for people. And even if housing is coming down a bit, it's still not affordable. So on the grocery side of it, the only way we can actually tackle this is the reason why you feel frustrated and why many listeners probably feel frustrated is because the Liberals' plan was the most cynical plan and really, frankly, ridiculous. They basically said, we're going to ask the CEOs nicely to stabilize prices. And then it came out that that did not work at all, that that plan to stabilize prices, just to stabilize them, not even bring them down, that also flopped because asking them nicely is not going to make it happen. How would you ask nicely the CEOs that are exploiting inflation and using it as cover to make record profits? They're not going to nicely just bring down prices. So our approach is we're going to strengthen the laws. One of the things that we have identified as a problem is that the laws in Canada are not as strong as in other areas where food prices are not as high. So our laws around protection, protecting consumers, and it's, they're called competition laws, they are weaker in Canada than they should be. So the Competition Bureau, which we asked to investigate, said, yep, profit margins are up. These corporate, corporate grocers are making record profits, and we are not able to tackle these problems because we don't have the same powers that Australia, for example, or the United States have to tackle these issues. So we are putting forward a proposal to change the laws in Canada that would tip the scale back in favor of people. Because right now the scales are very much tipped in favor of these billionaires who are making huge profits. Western families, one of the richest families in Canada, Loblaws, Sobeys, Metro are all posting huge profits. 
and people are saying, well, we can't even afford our groceries while they're making these huge profits. It just doesn't fit right with us. That's Jagmeet Singh, leader of the federal NDP, talking about uh, the the mini budget, the fiscal update right. that's coming tomorrow. I feel, Simi, like he gets it. You know, like I could hear his passion but and frustration there. Is it gonna? Is he gonna be able I to? Just, how? How uh, are exactly. you gonna change it? That's what it all sounds good, and I think that's the frustration many Canadians have with not just that, but all political parties at this point. Is it all sounds good, right? But how are you actually going to do it, uh, Scott? Thank you. You got it. This is Mornings with Simi. What would you do in order to be internet famous? How far would you go? Well, for too many people, the answer is, hey, whatever it takes. The reward is going viral, and apparently that makes it worth it, I guess. Well, Tyler Funk is a Burnaby filmmaker who has spent time looking into this and looking into the lives of the type of people who do this, particularly young men, and what it actually gets them. His documentary is called Anything for Fame, and Tyler Funk joins us now. Tyler, thanks for being here. Good morning. What got you started on this topic? So I kind of grew up uh, pre-internet. Um, and so me and my friends, we were all interested in fame. Uh, we grew up in a small town, Banff, Alberta. Uh, and we really wanted to come to Vancouver and, and make movies. Um, and sort of throughout that process was a very different time where if you did something ridiculous or silly, you could forget about it. Um, but anyways, we went to university, we got to film school, uh, and our friend, uh, the actor Dave, uh, he actually took his own life, which was really tragic, and we've been dealing with it for a long time. Um, but it really reminded us that call for attention and, and, and performing is a fine line. And so I was really curious when I was seeing all of these things on TikTok and Instagram of people jumping between skyscrapers and kind of wondering what was going on and, and wanted to ask those stories and get an idea of who they were. And what did you find? We found so many different stories. Um, you know, I think current content creation, as it grows to be a more popular um, career that young, a young generation wants to pursue, is, is a bit of a gold rush. You know, people think there's a lot of money to be made, uh, when in reality, uh, it's not that simple. Now, what always gets me about this, it reminds me of back in the day, and you and I might be a similar age, pre-internet. That's what you watched, like, America's Funniest Home Videos for, right? Exactly, yeah. And this is the new version of that. Is there anything that some people won't do, Tyler? Because it seems crazy. Yeah, I think the rules are all different now. Uh, I think before with, uh, you know, cable television or, you know, America's Funniest Home Videos, there was guidelines. There was broadcasters. Uh, now, really, if you can get attention online, um, people, someone will do that to try and get that attention. What were some of the craziest things that you came across? You know, one of the big ones, of course, is uh, Peter T. Time in the film who uh, climbed the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, I think he was the second human ever to do that. And uh, the FBI ended up tracking him down. Um, everything from that to uh, people shooting their cheeks uh, through with pellet guns, uh, licking toilet seats on airplanes, uh, you name it. Okay, that was just gross, licking toilet seats on airplanes. Is there actually, Tyler, a reward for this? Because it seems to me that if you do it, and yeah, you go viral for it, the next thing has to be even more outrageous. Like, where do you draw the line? Where do they stop? Yeah, and that's sort of a problem that young content creators are really facing, right? If, if your career is based on one-upping yourself, where do you go? You know, how do you get out of that? How do you not become trapped in that persona? And so what do they do? What do they tell you? You know, and that's where we saw all different stories. Uh, and that's where I'd really encourage viewers to kind of check out the film. Uh, for some people, you know, you see a lot of the fallout and damage with their employers, with their uh, family members. 
other people do manage to secure that bag and make a ton of money. Um, so really, it's an individual kind of, you know, everyone's journey is so different, but it really requires some planning uh, if, if the goal is to make money and to keep sustaining it. Do you think it is sustainable for some of these people? Is there ever, did you come across anybody who had a realization that this is like, this is a trap and I, I can't get out of it? Yeah, that's where most of uh, the subject matter film, I'd say, arrived at. You know, the realizing that once you've done that, once you've damaged your reputation, it's really hard to jump back into society. And, you know, as one content creator puts in the film is when everyone sees you as the clown, it's hard to put the business suit on. Is that what happens then? Do some of them find that it was actually, in the end, damaging to their reputation? Oh, yeah, ex extremely so, right? And And so that's part of the reason of making the film is really having a broader dialogue of if you're going to go down this path, if you really want to be a YouTuber, or TikToker, and you want to be outrageous, like to provide a younger generation a bit of the knowledge on, uh, you know, what the reality is, how few people actually make it to that level of, say, uh, Jake Paul or Logan Paul. Right. But those are the really rare. When you think of all of the people out there creating things for YouTube, those, the Paul brothers are, are quite the rare circumstance, aren't they? Yeah, they're extreme outliers. Uh, and that's what our film gets a little bit into uh, through some of our academic experts of some of the numbers on that. Um, I think like a lot of people see the articles in Forbes or Entertainment Weekly saying, I'm going to make a ton of money. Uh, and they just think, well, I can pick up a camera, do something outrageous, and I too will do that. Um, you know, but, you know, it's like sports. Not everyone who picks up a basketball gets to be LeBron James. So what did you find in terms of numbers? Can you give us an idea? The odds of being in that top top percentile is the same as making two professional sports leagues and getting into Harvard. Um, so it's doable, right? It's You could do that, but it's extremely rare. And I think people forget, you know, there are now a billion accounts uh, on YouTube and there's hundreds of millions of content creators. And, and unlike professional sports, there isn't an age limit. It's not like there's a funnel of starting in the junior leagues and you're shot at the pros. People are jumping in at all different parts in life, but that also makes it so much more competitive. And so where did you see the, the most egregious examples of this? Was it YouTube that people aim for? Was it TikTok? No, I don't, I don't actually like to point my finger at any individual platform. I think platforms go through different phases. You know, I think we should all think of them as thrift stores. They just want a ton of content. So when new platforms emerge, you kind of see the worst behavior. And we saw that with early days Vine, um, which was the kind of the precursor to TikTok. And then you saw it with early days YouTube. And then you saw it with early days uh, TikTok and Instagram Reels, where whenever a platform kind of starts out and it needs viewers, it'll encourage young creators to do absolutely anything. And then once the brands come on board, they'll start to regulate that a bit more and kind of kick them off the platform. So I think it's important that creators advocate for themselves and realize that the platforms aren't necessarily their friends. What did you learn then, Tyler, in this process about what people will do for fame? Be, uh, my feelings on this is that there will always be people who will do anything for fame. doesn't matter the lessons we learn or what, whether it's social media, television, you name it. People will always, there will always be people who will want to do anything. People will do anything as long as there's viewers watching, you know? And I think there's a big part in the film where you kind of get to a little bit of what people are actually watching, and it's called dwell time. So that's what you actually spend your time watching as opposed to what you like, comment, and share, and say that you're watching. So as long as people keep wanting to watch, people jump between high-rise buildings, young content creators will keep doing that. So are those two different things, what you just suggested there, what we actually watch versus what we say we're watching? Yes, I think there's a big difference there. And you know that's part of why the TikTok algorithm is so powerful, because it's all just based on your dwell time and what you're actually watching. Uh, where, you know, you kind of ask people what they watch online. People like to say, I love cat videos. 
Um, but of course, we wouldn't have so many outrageous videos if everyone was just watching cat videos. That is very true. Tyler, where can we watch your documentary? So the film is available on uh, the NFB's platform, uh, alongside it, many other great films, uh, and also on Paramount+. Plus. Um, so NFB, it's free for all Canadians. So I'd say that's probably the best place to go check it out. So how did you feel when you finished this? Were you discouraged by what you found? Were you inspired by what you found? You know, I'd say a bit of both. Uh, we, we saw some very, very complex dynamics within individuals' families, uh, journeys that people were on. Um, ultimately, I think, you know, for content creation, we need more empathy and we probably should all participate. I think it's easy to say, hey, you know, people are doing ridiculous things for fame. But if we want to change that type of content, if we want to change what's out there, it's actually better if you pick up your own camera and participate with your kids as opposed to letting your kids try and figure out how to get famous online by themselves. That's true, right? If you can't beat them, I guess, join them. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. You know, I like to I like to think about it a lot of like, you'd never drop off your kid downtown Vancouver by themselves if they're at a young age, but you might let them start making YouTube videos by themselves that, you know, we're seeing kids age seven or eight starting their own YouTube channels. Um, and the internet's got a lot of ideas and a lot of people. And so I think for me as a parent, uh, that everyone should, you know, participate, make it a better place, uh, join with the kids, make it a fun activity. And I think that's a solution to us uh, getting better content and a better experience for everyone. That is good advice. Tyler, thank you. Thank you so much. That is Tyler Funk. Tyler is a director. He directed a documentary called Anything for Fame that takes a look at essentially what people will do uh, to get internet famous, to become internet famous, uh, particularly young men. They are seem to be the demographic that really goes for all of them, the most dangerous, the riskiest type of behavior, all on the hopes of maybe getting recognition, maybe some wealth. But the problem is you do one thing and you get one viral video, and immediately the audience out there says, well, what are you doing next? And then you have to get more and more outrageous and more and more really dangerous, actually.